0: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to another week here at the Conservative Conscience on Monday, July 23rd, here on the Westwood One Podcast Network, powered by Conservative Review. And yes, we are growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, I really thank you all for tuning in. Every week, our listenership is really expanding. And you know what? That tells me that so many of you are starving for something that is more substantive. Starving for something that will break this kind of binary idolatry mold of uh, the false dichotomies. Well, you're either this or you're that. Um, you know, breaking out beyond the narrow scope of what the media tells us to focus on, and even what the conservative media, by extension, focuses on, because many of them are nothing but the rear end of the mainstream media. Because they'll only go where the media tells them to go. They might disagree with it vigorously and respond to it, but there's more to the world than that. And you know, I'm really proud of some of the guests we've have, had on. I know we've had really good feedback. Um, we had Logan Churchwell on uh, Friday to give us a really detailed discussion about voter fraud, type of thing you're not going to hear in most other places. Uh, we had uh, Mark Schneider, one of the you know, most experienced experts in uh, nuclear warfare – missile defense, <laughs> asymmetrical warfare, uh, telling us exactly what the real problem with Russia is and what, what we could do about it, this uh, asymmetrical nuclear capability threat, and got a lot of very good feedback from that. And, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And I want to start off the week just tying together a lot of different issues, but under a broad theme, which is something that, for those of you who are new, this is – Often, what we'll do is kind of go through some issues. Some of them are talked about in the media, other conservative media, some of them are completely ignored, and we'll put it together for one thesis. And, you know, I want to start off with an analogy from a big social media meme that just made its rounds over the weekend. It went viral on social media when at a Cubs game, one of the Cubs players, I'm forgetting who it was, found a, a ball on the sidelines and tossed it to the to a fan sitting in the first row. It was a kid. He looked like he may, might be six, seven, eight years old, and the kid missed the ball, and it rolled under a seat. And this grown adult, who was sitting under the, who was sitting behind him, uh, you know, just lunged for it, grabbed it, and triumphantly paraded it around like 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 a seven year old would do. Um, you know, literally taking candy away from a baby, and just you know, everyone was outraged by it, and the Cubs responded by, I guess, they tracked down the kid and they gave him, you know, a bunch of stuff and a signed, uh, autographed uh, ball, and, and all is good. But I was thinking, you know, that kid is kind of like what conservatives are in the political system. You know, we're tossed by the voters; the voters toss us uh, the ball. Hey, hey guys, he, he, here it is. You won the election. They toss Republicans an election, and instead, Republicans take it out of our hands and give it to the Democrats. Except in this case, we don't have uh, anyone to appeal to to give us back the mandate, give us back the ball. And we're seeing this on a number of fronts. You know, I, I want to go through some of the congressional agenda. Tied into spending and the debt, which is a forgotten problem. And then with that, maybe just go over some of the points we made last week about prioritizing a true America first foreign policy and how that will not only keep us safe. It will actually save us so much money so we don't get boxed in with this false dichotomy of having to constantly spend more on the military but then you know, have to pay the ransom and spend more on non-defense spending. And maybe a couple of other issues if we have time for it, you know. So no, I mean I'm I'm not going to go over the whole FISA and Russia stuff. Not saying there's nothing to go over with there, um, but you're going to hear that everywhere everywhere else this week. Now, one of the forgotten tidbits last week, you know, when everyone was focused on Trump and Putin, was the fact that it was now announced the white house now admits this i mean we knew this anyway that next year and when i say next year i mean next fiscal year beginning october 1st the deficit will surge to 1.1 trillion 1.1 trillion and, and you know i understand people just don't care but i'm going to explain why 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 you should care we haven't seen that level of you know, annual deficits. This is an annual deficit. We haven't seen that since the first term of Obama, not the second term, but the first term of Obama. And remember, that was following a really bad depression, a very slow recovery. Now we have, by some measures, the best job market since the 1960s. So you know you're you're getting in more revenue naturally, and yet we're still slated for an insane debt crisis. And at the same time, Congress is doing everything they can to make matters worse, and the president is not threatening a veto. And in fact, the president is supporting a lot of this stuff. And once again, there's nobody whispering in the president's ear and say, "Hey, Mr. President, you know, you actually had a good budget proposal. You you have some good guys running OMB. I'm personally very good friends with the deputy OMB director. Really good guy. Spends every waking hour um, of his life to find different strategies of of dealing with the debt problem. For us to vote that is. You know, and Mulvaney. I, I have issues with him on immigration, some other issues, but you know, generally he's pretty, pretty good on this. He's the OMB director as, as well as the CFPB uh, director, and you know, th- th- there's nobody whispering this in his ear. Nobody on our side cares, but I will tell you that not only is it a fiscal problem. But it's a national security problem that ties into a lot of the issues we've recently discussed on the show, and and a lot of the issues discussed, you know, in the in the general news. It is literally weighing us down, in so many ways. You know, one of the interesting things we've pointed out, um, we did a show on this a couple months ago. We have an article on this that um, I'll link to in show notes. So you could see it, I forget when I wrote it maybe two, three, two, three months ago. That there's an interesting dichotomy going on on the one hand on the one hand, spending is just, you know, it's through the roof. Revenue is actually up a little bit from last year. It's lower than what the baseline would have been without the tax cuts, but still the tax cuts, we haven't lost that much baseline revenue, and still an overall revenue relative to last year were up. So what's the – so now? where does a lot of that come from? A lot of that, the growth in the job market comes from the tax cuts, and I I agree with that. That's fine. But why is it that on the one hand – the job market is is insanely good, but on the other hand, guess what? Economic growth. Now, look, I, I might be disproven from this coming quarter. You know, keep in mind we don't have the data out for, you know, for for this quarter, but, you know, for the first quarter of the year, January, February, March. Economic growth was about 2%. And I'll tell you, we've never seen something like that before. Now, I would expect one of these quarters, if not the one where, you know, we uh I guess just finished, quarter two, is going to surge a little bit more. I'd be shocked if it didn't. But this is still unprecedented. You know, anytime we've had anywhere near this type of job market, whether it was Oh, 2004, 2005 or the late 90s and certainly in the 80s, we had GDP growth that was um that was going bonkers. That was totally totally amazing. So what is it that, you know, what gives in the in the fourth quarter of 2017 we had 2.9% growth, okay? That's pretty good. We thought maybe we were headed finally to 3%, 4%, but you know, it went back to 2%. So now, look, we're we're in July already. So, um, you know, we don't have second quarter data on. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting. Is it next week that um, they're going to release their their next uh, GDP uh, report? I'm, I'm I'm forgetting when they do it. I'm just drawing a blank there. Uh, but within the next few weeks, we'll have numbers on that. But in general, it is pretty doggone unprecedented. To have two percent growth, with with this, this is the, I mean again, this is like, you know, if I give you the best punch I have, I punch you in the stomach as hard as I can, and you know, you don't really react. Like, holy smokes, if that's the best I can do when I'm at my strongest, I'm really in trouble. And it's kind of the same thing here. Um, it's okay, but if this is the best growth we could have, you know, and two percent is actually mediocre. I'm I'm, I'm assuming that you know it's going to th- this past quarter that we just finished the one we're in now second third quarter fourth quarter is going to be more like 3% but even then you put it all together that's pretty bad given the job market and you know not to repeat what we said before for our, but for our new uh, audience this is my thesis that it's all the debt the debt is not some sort of abstract number that oh we're going to owe back this Money over time that you know. Let's face it; none of us care about our posterior. We just care about the here and now. My point is, okay, the here and now. You don't realize it, but it's an albatross upon economic growth. That yes, we're we're hiring more people, but our economy is so inefficient because of the debt and which is which is fueling a misallocation of resources and investment that. um, you know, permanently we're just uh, we're just languishing, that, that we're we're permanently sick, that even at, at our good times where we should be booming, you know, the, the growth is just not that much. That's my thesis. We have all sorts of capital going into government mandated schemes that increase dependency programs or debt rather than the most efficient investments. Dictated by the best market indicators. And now as interest rates are pushed higher, more private money is used to purchase treasury securities to service the debt rather than invest in capital goods. More factories, more plants. And, And, you know, you see the president complaining about that. Oh, they're raising interest rates. You know, that's not fair, but. You know the, the the way to get around that is by the President combating the debt. so we won't have a need to service it that much, and yeah, you raise interest rates, but you won't have as many uh, opportunities for them to buy our dependency and essentially buy our Democrat votes. And again, this ties back into China. This is their leverage over us. China is such a strategic threat, possibly a bigger threat th- than Russia. And in the coming weeks, I want to have Mark Schneider back and some other people to really delve into this. We haven't delved into China so much, but they're a threat to us. Remember, they think in increments of 100 years. But you know, the president points this out, and he says, oh, well, it's our $300 billion trade deficit. That's not what it is. I have a trade deficit with my supermarket. It's not a problem in and of itself. The problem is what they're investing in they're investing in our debt it's the it's the 1.3 trillion fiscal deficit we have in china where they own 1.3 trillion of our debt and it's going to increase with the explosion of deficits from you know 450 billion a year when he took office to trillion dollars deficits indefinitely he's got to worry about this if he wants a legacy you know the tax cuts were good, but it's not the end all. The end all is the dependency. It's, it's the, the, the growth of debt that's – it's really a double-edged sword. It's the debt in itself weighs down the economy, and the misallocation of resources. But also what's reflected in the debt are these market-distorting programs, which Trump has been pretty good on regulations but not the fundamental ones you know he's been good at kind of trying to limit obama's extension of them unilaterally what he did you know with that but you know he does need congress to get rid of section 404b of sarbanes oxley cafe standards ethanol mandate all of dodd frank the rains act and then of course of course the healthcare dumpster fire um, it, it's just insane by the way i'm reading this great book ripped off on, on healthcare. Um I'm trying to remember who the authors are, but uh it's it's a really good book that just came out and I want to try to have the authors on the show. And again, this is something that should be bipartisan. Um you know how how, how they're ripping us off because government enabled an entire market like that. I mean, think about all the wasted output. The layers of we we have literally a trillion dollars. We, we spent three point three to three point five trillion on healthcare as a nation. A trillion of it is wasted, given to middlemen. The bill, the the bill-paying industry, the PBMs, all the middlemen skimming off the top. Not to mention the third-party payer. Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, which isn't private. is controlled by the same people who control Medicare and Medicaid based on the stupid tax uh, exclusion. Healthcare is everything. You're not going to tackle anything without tackling healthcare. Okay, healthcare is, is everything. And... You know, I give the president credit, I really do, for some of the things he's done administratively, and I think some of them are going to come out soon with the short-term plans that will shake up the market. But again, he's got to use his veto leverage, and, and he's got to demand more budget reconciliation. If they're not going to get rid of the filibuster, at least use the same thing that was used to pass the the, the tax cuts, but they're not doing that this year. So there's not a single good piece of legislation that's going to come out of, uh, come out of Congress right the entire year, which is pathetic. And we need we need a bill repealing Obamacare and some of the other stupid third market third- party stuff. It's 18 percent of our economy. It's all think about this. You want to talk about why our economy is sick. You know, where you don't you – know, you know, look at look, look at where the economy works, electronics, technology. Boom. You know, they take – there's not a wasted morsel there. It's all based on organic consumer demand. Here you have 18% of the economy run off of third- and fourth-party payer systems lining the pockets of the insurance cartel, health-administrator conglomerate, conglomerates, the AMA. You know, like I said, the PBMs, you have the group purchasing organizations. We're literally mortgaging our future to pay for massive healthcare and education programs that are creating private monopolies, inducing price inflation, and by the way, creating so much personal debt. Education and healthcare. I mean, we're leaving our rising generation with the government sponsored healthcare and education cartels that destroy innovation. Sky-high insurance bills, crushing student debt, and nothing to show for it but a public debt that will soon force us to pay more than the cost of the military just on the interest payments. Okay, that, that that's coming by 2025, maybe earlier. And we spend a lot on the military. I would argue a lot of it's you know, not on parts of the military that we should be spending on and, and different – operations that we should be spending on but that, that that's the point so you can no longer run away from this issue this is what's giving china leverage over us this is what is making the interest payments on the debt now with the higher interest rates are soaring so it's going to do two things it's going to soar it's going to you know increase our costs on on just literally flushing money down the toilet just to pay on servicing democrat dependency votes but then also create more of a demand for treasuries and you have investment in our debt rather than garbage, whether it's domestic creditors or China and Japan and Mexico. Those are among the top holders of our debt. So why am I, why am I talking about all this? Because just, just this – um. Just this week, the Senate plans to vote on four, four of the 12 spending bills. They're packaging into what I guess you'd call a minibus. It's not an omnibus with all 12 spending bills, but four of them. It's agriculture. I mean, taken together, they fund um, the Interior Department, EPA, Treasury, Agriculture, um, Transportation, HUD. I'm forgetting, you know, there might be one or two others thrown in there. And, you know, it codifies everything that was in the omnibus bill. Plus, it, it actually it increases it a little bit, too. It increases spending for the EPA, increases spending for HUD by 4%. And the president promised us never again. Remember that? Remember how he promised in March after he signed every every budget bill he's been taken to the cleaners? So the spring when he took over to FY 2017 – Finishing that up, FY 2018, in September of last year, and then um, the two budget betrayals this past March, the budget caps, and then the omnibus bill. And then he said, oh, this is it. Never again. I'm going to veto it. His exact wording, trying to remember what it was, um, at that signing ceremony. Yeah, I mean he said, I will never sign another bill like this again. I'm not going to do it again. Well, here we are. The Senate is codifying the omnibus levels of spending, and, and this is all non-defense spending. And, and there's no SAP. A SAP is a statement of administration policy threatening a veto. Well, I mean, a SAP could be positive too. It could be in the affirmative, you know, they could say they agree with the bill, but he should issue a SAP threatening a veto. And yet nothing. Nobody is pressuring the president to keep his promise on this, and if this keeps down this way, I guarantee you in September, he's going to sign another budget bill like that. And there won't be anyone to to hold him accountable because everyone's going to be busy fighting for Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, which in itself, as we spoke about for so many weeks, is a battle that, you know, in my view, it's not going to fundamentally change the problem with the judiciary. This is the problem. We're like that kid with the ball stripped from our hands. We don't have, a, you know, a Twitter mob to appeal to, to help us. The Twitter mob is distracting on these issues. So, you know, and meanwhile, you know, it would be one thing if, okay, there we're going to lose on the spending fight, but Trump's holding firm on his immigration priorities in the budget bill, going after sanctuary cities, getting the ICE agents, getting the wall, ending the asylum fraud, and certainly going after the courts, a provision they should put in the in the Homeland Security Bill, or frankly, they should put in the Financial Services Bill. So w- one of the bills they're passing is Financial Services. It funds um, the Treasury Department and general government. Included in that is actually the um, budget of the judiciary, and guess what? The judiciary is getting a pay raise. Uh-huh. So much for holding them accountable. So, you know, this is where the leverage is. And, you know, a couple months ago, I laid out a strategy, a two-pronged strategy. I said, especially when immigration was very hot, I said the president could have made the entire June and July a fight over Im- immigration. I every day on Twitter, I will veto a bill that does not fund my priorities. And then once you have that, and I said we should tie together homeland – he should demand that, that homeland security be tied to the military. So it's kind of like one big security package. Then you get that out of the way, and then you could totally address spending in the non-defense sections of government and those uh, appropriation bills from position of strength without holding the military hostage. Run ads against the Democrats, hold them in the entire August, and then have a spending fight. But no, we can't have good things because we don't have a movement – and a conservative media focusing on this stuff, so you know the the president would listen, in my view. Hey, Mister President, you have a budget proposal. Follow it. You know, j- j- just in this uh, bill, okay, the Senate bill that they're passing, Agriculture Department, and by the way, this is just um the bureaucracy part of it. The discretionary part of it, not like the cost of the programs. Most of the agriculture, um, it's it's hundreds of billions because it, it's the cost of food stamps and things like that. But um, the discretionary side, $23.2 billion. The president's budget called for $19 billion. Transportation department, $26.6 billion. The president called for $15.6 billion. HUD, $44.5 billion. The president called for $39.2 Interior, dollars 13.1 billion. President called for 11.3. And in EPA, the bill funds it at 8.1 billion. Trump's budget calls for 5.4 billion. Those are all pretty big percentages. Pretty wide gulf. Now, you're not going to get everything you want from Congress, but you should get more than nothing. But you're not going to get it if you don't threaten a veto. And again, you know, this ties into. The national security priorities we talked about. The, the problem we're having is that because we're broke, every time we need something that we actually genuinely need because we want to address the stupid agriculture programs, the stupid dependency programs, the stupid healthcare programs, the education programs that do nothing but empower private – so-called private entities to gouge us then when it comes time to oh man we actually really need to update our nuclear capabilities and our missile defense um so we don't get left behind by Russia oh no, no, we don't have any money for that oh you know um we we need we need to deal with immigration we need to deal with latin america oh yeah, we don't have any money for that And this gets back to another problem. We're not only wasting on non-defense spending, we're wasting on defense spending too because a lot of what we're spending on is nation-building, is nation-building, referring back and forth in Syria. Oh my gosh, we can't let uh, uh, Assad win. So let's uh, fight Assad. Oh, well, now we created a Sunni insurgency. We can't let ISIS happen. Let's kill ISIS. Oh, now we empowered Assad, Russia, and Iran and Hezbollah. Oh, look, they're being empowered. But at the same time, we're fighting ISIS. Like what? Let's nation build Raqqa, which we're actually doing right now. Let's nation build Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Chad, Sudan, Somalia, Afghanistan is the big one. Yemen. That's where so much and so much of the cronyism is through there. It should be building up our nuclear deterrent. And, and, and we need to be dealing with Latin America. I want to get back to that. Maybe, maybe this week we'll have Joseph Humeyer back on to discuss the threat not just from Iran and Hezbollah but China and Russia in our own backyard and why that affects us. See, if we actually had an authorization bill, the NDAA, where we discussed not the spending levels but the policies, we wouldn't need to spend as much as we do on the military. We could have a lot less on these ridiculous deployments and the nation-building into the Afghani for, forces and have our cake and eat it too. Build up our forces but not – but conserve them. That's conservatism. Conservatism on foreign policy is to identify your the strategic threats, identify your interests, make sure America is first in our interests, go pedal to the metal with them and ignore what's not in our interest, and you'll see the money will take care of itself. But now because we're doing nothing on cutting domestic spending, we're increasing domestic spending – we're increasing military spending, but we're not first having a discussion over what is it we need the military for. We're getting squeezed, and then it's like, yeah, we have trouble finding money for missile defense and finding money for you know, ICE agents for increasing ICE and, and, and the border wall, which we do need. That's why the spending matters. It matters because it squeezes out our national security. It matters because it sells us out to China. It matters because we can't build up our, our nuclear deterrent with, with with the problems of the debt. It matters because of the misallocation of resources, permanently losing years of four or five percent of growth that growth that we could have, increased wages that 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 we'd be experiencing. And it matters because we're continuing this healthcare dumpster fire. And that's the next item on my agenda today. What Congress is doing on health care, which ties into this. And again, you're not going to hear this anywhere else. Oh, but first, before we get to health care, just wanted to go a step back. There's another issue I want to get to first before I forget, and that's the Farm Bill. So uh, last week, the House voted to go to conference with the Senate and convene a conference committee to iron out their differences on the Farm Bill. This is a perfect opportunity. To have a national discussion on the role of the federal government, food stamps, agriculture subsidies, all this stuff. Um, you know, we, we had a bill under Obama that massively expanded food stamps, massively expanded government in subsidizing uh, farm programs. And guess what? Both of these bills, the House and the Senate version to re extend the five year farm bill, $867 billion, they're more or less the same. So, you know, as you would expect, the Senate is always going to spend a little bit more money in each area, the energy subsidies um, in particular. But for the most part, they're the same thing. There's just one difference. The House has this much talked about work requirement um, for food stamps, except it's only applied to a tiniest liver of the population. And then they create this nanny state job training program because, you know, they're too scared politically to actually. You know, fully implement a work requirement. So, oh, job training, and then we're going to offer job training. So they have this whole job training agency they create that, according to, you know, so if you're going to do that, then you better have a robust work requirement mandate, meaning require it pretty much across the border, except for someone someone who's disabled, and they don't. So you mix the two together. According to CBO, basically the cost of the agency. Wipes out the savings from the limited work requirement, so you know it's not even better than the Senate bill. In the end, I mean, the whole thing's a joke. And then, of course, they both increase. Uh, they both codify the Obama era expansion of agriculture subsidies, not just you know, to work as insurance, but as what they call shallow loss. The price loss coverage program and the agriculture risk coverage program. Those are the two programs that guarantee a loss off of record revenue for farmers. And you know, Trump is very populist on this and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, we need to fund our farmers and everything. Um, but I mean, dude, that's like the Obamacare of you know of of Agriculture. You know, when you treat insurance, and the whole thing to begin with is government insurance, not private, but to treat it like uh, you know, a, a primary payer. Shallow loss. You know, the projected cost of these programs initially was twenty seven billion, now it's gonna top fifty billion. And um this bill actually raises the floor for subsidies to kick in when the prices dip below that target level. So it actually expands them. And, um, you know, th- th- this is the problem it's market distorted price manipulation. It's worse than even direct subsidies. It's kind of like healthcare. See, much like with Medicaid subsidies, what do we say? What do we always say here on this show? That you have to understand that, you know, seventy five percent of Medicaid goes to the healthcare administrator cartel. Whether it's insurance companies or the healthcare administrators, and that's why you have literally a hundred billion dollars a year in fraud. Hundred billion dollars a year in fraud. Unbelievable. You know because we just we, we don't funnel it directly to the people, which I would argue would be a better thing to do it in regulated HSA accounts and where you just give them the freaking money. instead we empower a price fixing cartel. So we do the same thing here with farm subsidies where we funnel these uh, price loss programs, these shallow loss programs through these macro com- commodity pricing um, and it empowers a monopoly. So according to the CRS report from last year, 94% of the farm subsidies go to just six commodities. And 46% of it goes to corn. And corn is already benefiting from the greatest subsidy of all time, which is the ethanol mandate. Requiring that all fuel, pro- fuel producers blend ethanol into the nation's gasoline supply. Now, you might think, all right, well, these six commodities are the end-all, right? Well, no. Despite receiving 94% of the subsidies, those six commodities only account for 27% of the output value of all farming. CRS ends off by saying that um, you know, this finding merits further inspection of how the programs function across program crops – well, no such an inspection is taking place, and the president's not going to push it. And, and the president is praising the farm bill. I mean, again, you're, you're not going to change anything if this is the way you want to do business. You're just not going to change anything if if you're if you're like, oh, I want to cut spending. The debt's going to be a thing of the past. Trump says something like that. We're going to get rid of it in short order when he became president. And you know, he comes in and just rubber stamps and praises everything the swamp does on the fiscal front. So that's with the farm bill. I mean, if you don't address things that are that important, you're not going to cut spending. If you don't audit our priorities on foreign policy and national defense, you can't cut spending. And then finally, as I mentioned, if you don't deal with health care, you can't cut spending. So, you know, and again, this this is kind of – below the radar you're not going to hear this elsewhere but i checked the house schedule for the, this week what is the house dealing with so it's always very random you know they never do what i always you know advocate for that we harness the news cycle or at least we make our own big deal out of things going on in the world that people care about you harness that for a legislative agenda instead They allow the Democrats and the left to harness the agenda for their things, and then they'll focus on these just random mundane bills that you know are just placed there by special interests and have nothing to do with certainly what's good for the people as a whole. But just what would be good politically to survive um, never made any sense to me. So anyway, I looked on their uh, agenda. And so let me just dispense of the first two quickly, and we'll focus mainly on the third thing. Three healthcare bills they're focusing on. No, they're not going to repeal the Obamacare mandates. They're not going to you know, go through all of the ways that government distorts health care to the third-party regime, all of the things we've discussed over the years that are winning issues. So what they're doing is the first bill is to repeal a 2.3 percent excise tax on medical devices. Now, look. Um I agree with that, but it's kind of funny this is like the 50th time they're voting on that. And this is just going to make it harder to, to repeal the rest of it because this is the part that K Street wants. Now, I don't I, I don't disagree with it, but I'm just saying it's funny how the only focus on what K Street want K Street wants. Okay. The next thing is it will expand HSAs to allow for the purchase of lower premium copper insurance plans at a cost of uh, about $11 billion in, in lost tax revenue, according to Joint Committee of Taxation. Um, so now you might think, okay, well, you know, expand the use of HSAs, these copper plans. But it, it, <laughs> this in itself reveals how obtuse they are in understanding the insurance market. And I know we have a lot of listeners that are in the same boat that I was. So that ship has sailed because of the corrosive, degenerating nature of Obamacare. It has reached a point. First of all, we shouldn't even be talking about copper plans. It's like the Soviet Union. It, literally, our health insurance market is like a Soviet supermarket. That was the analogy I used throughout last year. You know, uh, harking back to, um, you know, Boris Yeltsin. Um, you know, visiting an American supermarket and being amazed at the array of options for orange juice. So you have silver, gold, and copper. You could use HSAs for the copper plans. Now, he, he, here's the problem with that. Um, I mean it's not a problem. It's just it, – it, it's not like we're going to go backwards with this piece of legislation, but it just reveals their stupidity. We've already reached a point where even the copper plans, at least for me in Maryland, are like two thousand dollar premiums a month. So why are you promoting HSAs? Okay, you're promoting it for people that aren't on the dole because if they're on the dole, then they're on the dole, which is most most people that don't have a job that don't get insurance from a job, unfortunately, are roped into that. And that's why you know Republicans don't want to touch it. Or if we should be tackling HSAs, at least convert the subsidies into HSAs but if you're addressing people that who aren't on the dole so even the copper plans have become so insane thanks to the guaranteed issue community rating that they won't address the heart and soul of obamacare and the subsidies and the medicaid expansion that collectively have just inflated the price of health insurance to insane levels so they're missing the point the whole point of HSAs, let's say back in a pre-Obamacare world, pre-Obamacare world, where expensive Cadillac meant $1,000 a month for a family, and you had plans that were maybe a few hundred dollars a month and maybe even less than that that are catastrophic. And you want to encourage people not to overutilize, like, all right, you know, you you're going to go for the lower option, and then pay more out of pocket if you have other things that are non emergency or up until the emergency, you know, level, the deductible level. So for you, you know, we're you know, since we're subsidizing insurance and everything, we should subsidize out of pocket. Right? So we should subsidize HSAs. I mean, it's not so and again, it's not the same subsidy. It's a tax break, it's a tax not credit, but tax deduction for those that are actually paying taxes. So that that that's good policy. But now I mean it, it, we've already crossed the point of no return. In HSA it's it's like throwing a a you know a crumb at someone after they already died from from uh, starvation, you know. It, it's $2,000 a year. It's already reached the point where if you are not getting subsidized, you're not getting it from work. You don't have some, you know, sort of uh, self-employer situation where your business could pull together with a kind of, you know, other group plans. You're already screwed, so you're already forced to either, you know, go without insurance, um, like me, you join a health sharing ministry, um, or some other thing like that. What is needed more would be expanded HSAs. Not just for insurance plans, that a pocket part at least, but A, maybe expand it for premiums, but I would argue also equal out alternatives to insurance. Because um, you know, whether it's DPC, you know, direct primary care, so the concierge monthly fees, you know, allow that to be deducted. Tax free, just like you deduct insurance cartel. You know, this is almost like its own self insuring where they'll do, you know, a lot of things. If you need stitches, if you need a bone set, you know, you could, you know, they'll, they'll, a lot of them will do a lot for you. Um, They'll go that far. Obviously, you know, long term hospitalization or something like that, you know, it's not going to work. But um, that much DPC is kind of self insured or health sharing ministries. So I pay about $460 a month to Liberty Health Share um you know i should be able to deduct that the same way people could deduct for insurance and certainly the same way people get freebies for the insurance cartel but to say oh you know okay so after you pay $2000 a month 20,000 a year or more more than 20,000 a year uh close to 25,000 a year well then here's a uh, some you know deduction for for your out of pocket expenses. I mean that's ridiculous. Ridiculous. We've already crossed that Rubicon. You know what I mean? We're 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 already done with that. That is just like it, it, it's preposterous, right? It, it's just it's just not gonna work. And, and and again, you know, there's nothing wrong with passing this bill, but it just shows how how out of touch they are. How they they so badly want to avoid the 800 pound gorilla in the room which brings me to the third element the third bill that they're passing where they not only aren't they addressing the 800 pound gorilla in the room in healthcare governments handout to third party payers through medicare medicaid obamacare then the regulations and then the original sin of healthcare the employer-based tax exclusion that both empowered insurance to become healthcare and also within the insurance market empowered groups over individuals and if you you don't get it from a job or you want to switch you're at you're you're left high and dry and that's a big part of the pre-existing condition problem that government created through this so they have another bill HR6199 if you want to look it up would offer tax breaks for gym membership and fitness classes. So, dude, if you want to know the the, the quickest way to skyrocket the price of gym memberships and fitness classes, pass this bill. I mean, that's the lesson we just talked about of creating asset bubbles broadly in healthcare and education. Government goes and makes a tax break for that industry. Well, then the industry blows up. I mean, that it's ironic because this is a tiny sliver. You might even call it broadly healthcare, fitness. But they're missing the point that this is the original sin of health insurance that you offered all employers. You said, look, if you want to pay your employees an extra $15,000 a year, that's obviously going to be subject to taxation. But if you want to go and take that fifteen dollars fifteen thousand dollars and hand it to the insurance industry it's tax-free so guess what happened every employer basically in America since you know starting in the 50s started um, to offer that and then that literally gave um, the insurance cartel a pool of hundreds of billions of dollars every year added on top of Medicare and Medicaid to have a monopoly over health care. Where now they basically control. They're basically the supplier and the demand. They're the consumer and the provider at the same time. And this allowed them to just destroy any market forces, and then obviously destroy the um, ability of an individual to to purchase. You know, have purchasing power. You know, in two thousand sixteen, Americans spent again about three point four trillion on health care. In nineteen sixty, do you know what that number was? Twenty-seven billion. That's a nine percent year over year increase. So let's say it would have just grown with the general economy, the cost would be two hundred and twenty billion. Two hundred twenty billion today, not three point four trillion. Now you could say technology and some other things, you know, it's hard to imagine it would be two hundred twenty billion. It's certainly okay, let's say a trillion wouldn't be three point four trillion. Why? Well, what happened around that same period? Well, Medicare, Medicaid, but also this the, 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 the subsidization through the tax code of the insurance industry. In the early 1960s, patients paid about a $1.80 out of pocket for every dollar spent by a third-party payer. Right? You know what it is today? 20 cents on the dollar. You know that's what happens <laughs> when you, you're now bringing third party forces. Now, this is not directly having a third party pay for it, but it's it's it could be the beginnings of it, um, where the government is now engaging in price inflation of gym membership. You know, I just want to end the healthcare discussion here with with an anecdote. Some of you might have seen I put this out on Twitter. Uh just, you know, fundamentally what's wrong with healthcare? The third-party payer system and that's what we need to address. We need to get away from that rather than fueling it. We need to go back to direct payments where people are paying more directly and if everyone would do that, if the money ain't there, the money ain't there, they can't gouge you. That's what it used to be in the old days. And basically, so what happened was my um it, it was weird after Going on our vacation, and we we stayed really in a heavily wooded area. Um, we were always worried about ticks, and it turned out my middle son Joshua got the just the buddings of of Lyme disease. And it sounds really scary, but they, the doctors weren't worried about it. We just saw the rash, and you know it's it's fine. It just gave gave us a prescription of amoxicillin, but it was a bigger prescription, you know, for a few weeks. Um, now you know amoxicillin is is you know it should be like ibuprofen. <clears throat> Not necessarily saying it should be over the counter, but you know it's not, it's not a lot of money. Um, it's usually you know, very cheap. It was a slightly more expensive this time because uh, it was a longer dose, so you know, it was 27 bucks. So I called in the prescription, and then I come to fill it up, I come to pick it up, and the pharmacy, the pharmacist tells me, you know, I, I wasn't sure whether to fill your prescription. I saw you didn't have insurance. Now, as you guys know, I, I have health sharing ministry, so of course I'm covered for catastrophe, hospitalization. Um, but you know, they don't cover everything and you know, they don't cover most prescriptions, which is fine. you know, it's worth me paying four hundred fifty a month and not having that rather than, you know, paying two thousand a month. And even with the two thousand, I, I forget I forget depending on the plan, they don't really a lot of this is subject to a deductible. So and the deductible is ten thousand dollars. So um she she was like, Yeah, I didn't know whether to fill it, but you know, I wound up filling it. And I, I looked at her with a blank star, I was like, dude, I, I mean this is not like a thousand, you know, you see someone has a thousand dollar prescription and then you see they don't have insurance, so you wonder, like, hey, what's the deal here? I mean, it's 27 bucks. But she, you know, and I, I explained to her, I said, like, this is what's wrong with healthcare. That it's so rare for anyone to even pay twenty-five dollars out of pocket. That's insane. I mean, the the, the 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 no and and look It's cheap to begin with, and if everyone would be paying for amoxicillin out of pocket, I would argue it would be even cheaper. It would be as cheap as as, uh, ibuprofen, generic ibuprofen. But um, this this is how you inflate the prices. This is what's wrong, and it's government through the programs, through the subsidies, and through the tax code that has fostered this. But here it is. Here's this is what Congress is doing. It's utterly ridiculous. But anyway, you put this all together with healthcare misidentified priorities with defense spending and growing the bureaucracies with every budget bill, we have a debt crisis that's going to make Trump a worse worse of a debt king than Obama was. He's got to dust off that veto pen. And what are Republicans focusing on? they're focusing on what they call tax cuts 2.0 why don't they do spending cuts 1.0 before doing tax cuts 2.0 we already did the tax cuts you know i argued from day 1 fundamentally it's the spending it's healthcare it's market distortions it's the regulations that are weighing us down more than the tax. taxes taxes are are relatively low and to the extent they're too high it's on the people that You don't have the guts to lower them enough Um, because, you know, look, I mean, and this is what happened with the tax cuts. And and, and I'm not complaining. Ultimately, I think on net they were good, Um, but they made the tax code even more progressive like they always did because they knock out the bottom brackets, doubled the standard deduction, and doubled the refundable child tax credit, the amount that people make off the tax code. So um, according to the Tax Policy Center – you know, and by the way, they were the ones that were complaining about this. The tax code actually got more progressive. The top 0.1% will now see their share of federal income taxes climb to 22% of the pie. Top 0.1% will pay 22%, up from 18.9% before the tax cuts. Top 1% will pay 43.3% compared to 38% last year. Okay. I will tell you, it's not that disparity that they're going to address with tax point c- cuts 2.0. Now, part of that, and I think they're discussing it, they should make it permanent. But they should have done that in January, when they had the momentum. I mean, I wouldn't oppose doing it now, but I'm just saying, you know, that that was dumb. But there, there's not, there's no more juice to squeeze out of the tax issue. And you know, look while. Th- well, I would argue that the taxes aren't producing the deficit. The other side argued, and in fact, you know, like I write, the the, um, the revenue is actually up a little bit. Certainly for this fiscal year, but even if you look at the time that um, um, taxes have, the tax cuts were implemented in January. It's about even relative to the last year. Actually, it's you know uh, revenue is up four billion relative to last year, starting January. It is going to go down over time. But not nearly what the other side said. Now, they'll say relative to the baseline, you can't, you know, just factor in relative to last year. You have to factor in relative to the baseline and the job market's better this year. But you know, I think we would argue that a lot of that, maybe some of it would have been what we're slated to get there anyway, but you know, a lot of it's because of the tax cuts. So it's circular logic. So, you know, the tax cuts aren't the problem, but you know, you look kind of stupid when you keep increasing spending and then you keep only focusing on tax cuts. And you know, you're know you going to have the debt problem. No, we don't need tax cuts 2.0 now. We need spending cuts 1.0. Trump needs to focus on this. Anyway, there, there's a lot of other issues I want to get to. We didn't have time for Birthright citizenship is blowing up. I want to, I want to do a show on that at some point. Michael Anton wrote a response to his critics, a very good article, um, mentioning a lot of the things I wrote in my book. Um, I also have articles we we uh, upped from a couple of years ago on this issue. If you want to look for them, just Google Daniel Harowitz's "Birthright Citizenship." You'll find them. Um, you know, there, there there's a lot going on, but I want to end with this point: What is the end game to politics, other than the end an end to itself? Just recognize that this vicious cycle is going to go on the next time. No, no, no. We we had to cave this time because of this, but we're focusing on this, but the next time. If we're always going to have political morphine to shield us from the pain of the the true important issues, this is never going to end. If we don't have a budget fight now before this election, it's not going to end. You're, You're going to have the same problems. You're not going to have 60 votes in the Senate ever. Okay? You're not going to have it. In a, in a better year, better environment, the Senate map would have allowed us to pick up a number of seats. Now I would argue maybe it will just allow us to keep the Senate. At best, maybe you could pick up a seat or two or even three. But what, that puts you at 54 at best? And then immediately after this election ends, guess what starts? The presidential election. right? See, at least with a midterm, you have a year. To focus on legislation here, it starts right away. So you're going to have the whole cast of characters, Kamala Harris and crazies running, and that's going to be enough to keep our side engaged and Trump's counter comments to them. And meanwhile, the liberal policies will keep, you know, will continue. And we'll always have the political morphine. Oh, no, no. Okay, it's the second term. Then he has validation. Really? See, that? then the Senate map gets even worse. It's never, It's never going to get better. Then it is now. If not now, then when? If not us, then who? And, and that's what we need to focus on. So it's, it's, it's certainly the debt is important, but it's not just the debt. The debt is a compound issue in and of itself. But many other priorities, the immigration priorities, as, as we've said, it looks like we're not going to get it in the budget. And if Trump doesn't threaten that veto, we're pretty much done. Anyway, send me your comments and thoughts on who you want on the show, what other guests you're looking for, what other issues you want addressed. You could always email me at dhorowitz at crtv.com or tweet me at rmconservative, and you could also just see my uh, minute-to-minute rantings there as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us and making us one of the fastest-growing political podcasts. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.